Okay, so Luke 18, starting at verse 15. People were also bringing babies to Jesus to have him touch them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honour your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with men is possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them, No one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. 
He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began, mutter, began to mutter, he is gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up, stood up and said to the Lord, look Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Amen. Father, we want to thank you so much for bringing us together today around your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, that uh, he works in our hearts and our minds to change us, to, uh, to make us more the people that you would have us be, uh, holy, trusting and depending on you. And so we pray now that you'd be doing that uh, as we look at your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I used to work as a junior management accountant at uh, Colgate Palmolive in their, uh, what they call their executive offices in the central business district of Sydney. It was uh, the, the home of the, a, a few different departments that reported directly to the board of directors. And so it was a nice, comfortable place to work, actually. I enjoyed working there. The, the day I left Colgate to... Uh, start uh, working in a ministry apprenticeship in my church. I went around to all of the managers and uh, staff to uh, say my goodbyes. And I remember the conversation I had with one of the marketing managers. He said something which kind of surprised me but shouldn't have surprised me. In his office, he said to me that he envied me. And he told me that he thought that I had something in my life which he didn't have. And as he pointed out all of the paperwork, documents piled up on his desk, uh, he said, this work, uh, what am I doing with my life? I sell toothpaste. Which, by the way, I'm very glad that he does. I like toothpaste. Toothpaste is good. Although I must say that it, on one occasion I had the, as a junior accountant, I had the gumption to challenge the marketing department on the deceptive way that they sell toothpaste. Uh, surprise, surprise, folks. They deceive you even with toothpaste. How about that? You didn't know that, did you? But his comments were a reminder to me of uh, why I wanted to go into ministry, but also a reminder of why it was actually... Maybe I should have stayed at Colgate Palmolive to connect with people like him because we live in a world where people do yearn for some satisfaction which is beyond the material. Uh, whether we are successful in our business careers or whether we are poor and struggling we, or whether we belong to that, that vast mass of the, uh, 
of the middle class in Australia. When we reflect on things, it's hard for us to escape the conclusion that there, there's got to be more to it than this. There's got to be more to life. In today's passage, which be handy to have open in front of you on your computer, or your device or your, your Bible, uh, in Luke 18, we learn about several interactions which Jesus had with people who were, who were craving more. And the, the underlying issue, the thing that kind of ties these passages together, or these interactions together, is the question of how does a person enter into the kingdom of God, into the, the true spiritual reality? It starts with uh, two interactions, which are actually more about uh, who cannot enter into the kingdom of God, which is helpful for us to define the opposite, and that is who therefore can enter. But these are two interactions which are about who cannot enter the kingdom of God. And first of all, in verses 15 through to 17, uh, we're told that there were parents, there were mums and dads, who were bringing their babies to Jesus so that he, presumably so that he could bless them, that he could lay hands on them. And it might have been a little bit of wrong thinking on their part, but uh, they, they considered that uh, having their babies close to Jesus for him to bless them would be something really, really good. But the disciples rebuked them for doing that. I mean, after all, isn't Jesus too important? to be spending his time with little children. And besides, there's this rich ruler who's hanging around and we think that he maybe wants to have a chat with Jesus. So they rebuke the parents. Now, Jesus saw it differently. In verse 17, uh, Jesus had said, look, let the children come to me. In verse 17, because I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child, will never enter it. If you don't receive the kingdom of God like a little child, you can't enter. Now, why did Jesus say this? Well, think about little children. Think about babies. What are, what are babies like? I mean, apart from eating and crying and that other thing, <laughs> they are not self-sufficient. They are dependent on Others, they are wholly dependent upon others. There is a simplicity of trust which is part and parcel of being a little child. And so Jesus is saying that's how we need to be towards the kingdom of God. It's very different, isn't it, to the person who trusts in their, their wealth or the person who trusts in their achievements. It's very different to the person who trusts in themselves when what Jesus is saying is that we are to freely abandon, we are to hand ourselves over entirely in trust, not to those things, but to God. And I, I take it that that's why sometimes uh, God has to allow us to go through some challenges, even some calamities in our lives, because uh, sometimes we need to have stripped away from us uh, those things which perhaps we've been trusting in a little bit more than what we ought to. I've known people who have been what I would describe as 
religious non-Christians. And I'm not talking about being Muslims or Sikhs or Buddhists. I'm talking about people who uh, come to church, uh, who are regular churchgoers, but who are spiritually hard, spiritually dead. But God has allowed them to go through some, uh, some very difficult experience, such as cancer or heart surgery, and they've come through that as different people. You ever notice that? Actually softened, actually spiritually in tune, actually with a simple and grateful childlike trust in God. And it's actually quite wonderful to see when that happens. And, and that is unlike, it's very different to the next person who we meet in this uh, section of God's word. Uh, we meet him in verses 18 through to 22. He is powerful, he is rich, and he is religious. And he's got a question for Jesus. Have a look at what his question is. His question in verse 18 is, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, notice that he's asking about his inheritance. It's a spiritual inheritance that he's talking about, but I take it that for this rich guy, uh, the, the whole concept, the whole category of inheritances, which was probably something big in his life. He didn't ask the question, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? Hmm. Because I don't think he thought he needed to be saved. I thought he... It seems that he, he thinks he's good enough, but maybe there's just something a little bit extra that he's got to do. And when he called Jesus good teacher, I don't think he was being sarcastic. You think he was, that was probably out of respect because he is a respectful, uh, wealthy uh, ruler. He is respectful. But for Jesus, uh, this having been called good teacher opens up an opportunity for Jesus to expose the state of his heart, to shine a light on this man's heart. Why do you call me good? Says Jesus in verse 19. No one is good except God alone. Now Jesus here is not uh, casting any doubt about whether or not he is good. Uh, he's not saying that he is not God. What he's doing is he's giving this man an opportunity to do some uh, serious, re serious reflection on the words that he has just used. He's inviting this rich ruler to reflect on the meaning of what it means to be good and then to compare himself to that which is the gold standard of goodness and that is God himself. How do you do that? Well, the commandments are a good start, aren't they? I remember once I was sharing the gospel with a, with a guy who told me that he was okay with God because he obeyed all of the Ten Commandments. I said, really? Um, <clears throat> have you read the Ten Commandments lately? Do you even know what the Ten Commandments are? And predictably, the answer to those questions was no and no. But this wealthy ruler, he did know the commandments. 
Uh, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, honour your mum and dad. Yep, he said, I can tick all of those boxes, being doing all of that since I was young. And he's probably not telling a lie there, that's probably true. But that's five commandments. How many commandments are there? There are. What about the other five? You see, Jesus is setting him up here. Uh, because the other five commandments, they're about, uh, well, not being covetous. Uh, they're about living with God as first in our lives. They're about not trusting in idols. And herein lies the problem, which must be exposed. And so with devastating effect, Jesus now calls on this man to give up all of his earthly possessions to sell everything he's got to give the money to the poor and then come and follow Jesus in verse 23 the man's idol has been exposed because he leaves Jesus he walks away very sad in Mark's account of this incident, Mark says that Jesus loved this man, but he still walked away sad. And guess what? Jesus didn't go after him, did he? Didn't, Jesus didn't say, oh, hang on a moment, um, don't, don't walk away. Look, you know, maybe we can negotiate on this. Maybe, you know, I didn't quite mean it so literally, no. He had to let him go, didn't he? Because unless this man has a light shone into his heart, he will never understand how far short he's fallen from God's glory. He'll never understand that he, in fact, needs a saviour. He will never enter into the kingdom of God. How dreadful it is when uh, preachers even actually not only do not expose greed, but even endorse greed and encourage it, and so on, not Jesus. Jesus does not water down this requirement because unless the idol was exposed, the man could never possibly be saved by trusting in God and God alone. Now, can you imagine that scene? My guess is that this rich ruler was, was probably well-liked, and the people who were crowding around Jesus, they've they would have made way for him to come through and they would have been quite happy and quite excited to see that this rich ruler was actually getting some advice from Jesus and they would have wanted that. What did Jesus do? He let him go. And as the man was leaving, Jesus expressed his thoughts out loud in verse 24. In verse 24, Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is. For the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, some people say that uh, what Jesus is referring to here is a, is a very narrow gate uh, in the wall around Jerusalem where when merchants try to get into the city and the city gate had been closed that if they took all of the freight off the camel, the camel could squeeze through this very narrow passageway which 
they said was called the eye of the needle. I think it's actually better to take this more literally than that. And that is that Jesus actually is talking about this huge animal uh, actually slipping through the eye of a sewing needle. And remember, camels have got uh, humps on their back either. <laughs> so, you know, what Jesus is saying here is that it's actually impossible. Uh, and at that, the, the crowd would have drawn breath. Uh, this was, was a stunning thing for Jesus to say because they had the view that if a man was wealthy, unless he was a tax collector, if he was wealthy, then he must be godly because obviously God had blessed him. And so if this rich man, this man who's been so blessed by God, if he cannot be saved, then in verse 26, who can be saved? What hope is there for anybody? Jesus' answer is clear. There is no hope. There is no hope for anyone unless God is at work in their hearts. What is impossible for man is possible for God. Now, this is why we pray for our unconverted friends, isn't it? We pray that God would, by his spirit, so expose their idols, so humble them, so convict them of their sin that they would see that they need a saviour and that they would actually be drawn to Jesus. Is that what you pray? Do you pray for your non-Christian family, your friends, your neighbours? This is what we need to be praying for people because what is impossible for man is possible for God. Uh, then in verse 28, Peter is there. Peter, the, the guy who, in a conversation where nothing should be said, Peter says it. <laughs> and, and so in verse 28 here, Peter, he's heard what Jesus has just said and, he, and, he, and what he's just told this rich man to go and give up everything that he's had. And Peter points out to Jesus, he says, hey Jesus, we... We and the other disciples, we've already done that. We've, we've already left everything. We've left our fishing nets. We've left our businesses. We've left everything behind in order to come and follow you. To which Jesus responds that anyone who has left his home, his family, to, to follow him actually gains a much bigger family. And we see expression of that right here now, don't we? We are brothers and sisters in Christ and it's a family that we gain both now and for all of eternity. The rich ruler refused to give up everything for God. Peter boasted about things that he had given up but all of that is nothing compared to what Jesus had already given up. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Uh, in Philippians 2, 
that though he was in very nature God, what did he do? He emptied himself. He gave up the treasures and the riches of heaven and he made himself nothing, becoming a man. And here's Jesus. He's done all that already. The rich young ruler walks away sad because he doesn't want to give up his money. Peter says, hey, I've already given up my house and my business. Jesus has given up heaven itself. And having heard of Peter's sacrifices, Jesus now for the seventh and the final time spells out the great sacrifice that he is still to make. Verse 31. Second part of verse 31. We are going up to Jerusalem, says Jesus, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and they'll kill him. And on the third day he will rise again. Friends, whether you are rich or poor, whether you are powerful or weak, we all sin. Uh, someone who I care for, who is not yet a believer, uh, opened up about himself to me recently. And he wanted to describe himself and his situation and who he is and what his being is by using the lyrics of a song. He said, and I quote, I'm on the wrong side of heaven and the right side of hell. That is, I'm not dreadful. I, I don't really, I'm not the worst person who should go to hell, but I'm on the wrong side of heaven. Friends, without the cross of Jesus, we're all on the wrong side of heaven. And so to give up our petty idols is nothing compared to what he has given up for us. When on the cross he paid the price, he paid the penalty for our shortfalls, for all of our sin, so that we can be forgiven, so that we can inherit that which the rich man apparently did not crave enough of we can inherit eternal life. You know, uh, if the rich ruler had understood his sin, he would not have asked Jesus about his inheritance. He would have begged Jesus for mercy. And in uh, verse 35, the next man who Jesus encountered did in fact do that. In verse 35, as, as Jesus approached Jericho, there was a blind man sitting by the road. I, it's hard for us to imagine what it would be like to be blind. I've got a friend who's completely blind. And uh, I remember on one day, I, I invited him to, uh, to touch me. I said, put your hands on my head. Feel my face. Feel down my body. Which he did. 
in order to, to gain at least some sort of mental picture in his head of what his friend Scott actually is like. Uh, he, he's a married man. He's never, ever, ever seen his wife. It's hard for us to imagine that, isn't it? What it's like to be blind. This particular blind man who Jesus met, he, for him, being blind meant that he was dirt poor, he was a beggar. He was rejected when he knew that Jesus was there and he called out. People told him to shut up. And he was helpless. He was helpless because as he heard the commotion, he's, he has to say, what's happening? And people said, well, Jesus, the Nazarene is passing by. And though he was physically blind... He had amazing spiritual sight. In verse 38, as Jesus approached Jericho, in verse 38, he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He recognised Jesus better than anybody else did. Jesus, the son of David. He knew he could see that Jesus was the promised ruler of God's everlasting kingdom, the one whom they had been waiting for. He didn't ask about his inheritance, did he? All he wanted was mercy. Now, Jesus knew exactly what form that mercy would take for this man, but he wanted to give the man the opportunity to spell it out. He said, well, how, how can I help you? Lord, he said, I want to see. And what a remarkable moment that would have been for a blind man to have his eyes opened. And in fact, he got more than that. In verse 42, when, where Jesus says, your faith has healed you, there's a bit more to it than that because that can that more literally says, your faith has saved you. So when the Bible translators see the word saved in the context of someone being made well, obviously they're being saved from their sickness, so they're being healed, but it's more literally, your faith has saved you. And I think that's what's going on here. The dependent Trusting faith of a child in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then in uh, chapter 19, uh, verses 1 through to 10, there was someone else who could not see Jesus, but not because he was blind, rather because he was short. Right. Uh, now, Jericho was uh, kind of a hub uh, as part of an important uh, trade route. And so, therefore, it was a lucrative place to set up your tax-collecting business. Zacchaeus was doing so well that he no longer had to do the tax-collecting. He employed other people to do it for him. He just managed the money and the personnel. And as a tax-collector, my guess is he didn't really enjoy a particularly good social life. But he was filthy rich, and very empty. He, he knew that Jesus was about 
And we're told that he, he climbed a small sycamore tree just so that he could get a better view of Jesus. But in verse 5, it was Jesus who stopped. Jesus who looked up. Jesus who connected with him and Jesus who invited himself around to Zacchaeus's place. Verse 5, uh, have a look at that. Uh, in verse 5, uh, it says, uh, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. I must stay at your place today. You know why? Because the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's what he must do. <laughs> it's a very big contrast here because in contrast to the rich ruler, Zacchaeus didn't even need to be asked to repent of his idol. With childlike faith, with joyful abandonment, well, he just decided, I'm just going to give up all my wealth. Give half of everything I have away. And if I've ripped anyone off, I'm going to give them four times back. Whatever. Whatever. He was so grateful for God's mercy to him. So grateful that he abandoned the very thing he'd been putting his trust in. Because like a child, he now trusted that God would take care of him. So, in today's passage, we've met two wealthy men. One moral and religious, the other the exact opposite, a tax collector. They both knew in their hearts that there is more to life than career and money and possessions. And, and you know, like the marketing manager at Colgate, most people today have got at least a, a vague suspicion of God, of heaven, that there must be more to life than this. People do have a spiritual craving. People do have a, a yearning for, for meaning in this life, meaning that extends through into the next life, which we as Christians know can only be satisfied by our Creator. But there's a conflict. And we see this conflict in the heart of the rich ruler because we are, we are conflicted by, on the one hand, our craving for ultimate reality and on the other hand, by our desire for the things of this world. Zacchaeus had made a good living out of tax collecting. But he was conscious of a deep need that money had simply not met. He couldn't possibly trust in his goodness. That was out of the question. And he knew that money just failed to satisfy Yet his heart was filled with joy because he knew, he experienced firsthand the love of Jesus who didn't judge him, who didn't condemn him, who didn't ignore him, who actually wanted to stay at his house. How much more so for you and I who know the love of Jesus who despite our sin in fact, because of our sin, gave up his life for us. 
What sacrifice compares to that? So I want to ask you as we wrap it up today to think about your own faith and uh, where you stand. What are you putting your trust in? Are you trusting in uh, the things, your own achievements, uh, your own person, your own wealth, your material possessions? Or do you trust like a little child? Have you given yourself up wholly trusting in Jesus as your saviour. If you've not done that, I encourage you to do so, to talk to God about it and to put your trust in the one who loved you to death on the cross. And if you've already done that, be on the lookout. Keep searching your own heart for those idols that might be finding their way in and nudging Jesus away from his position as first in your life. Now let's pray and then we'll sing. Father, we want to thank you for these uh, connections that Jesus made with people and for the way that they're recorded for us for our benefit. Father, we thank you that there is ultimate reality, that there is purpose and value and meaning in life that is found by being connected uh, with you, our creator. And we thank you that Jesus has made that connection available through the great sacrifice that he's made for us on the cross. Now, Lord God, we pray for any of us here who haven't put our trust in him as yet. And we pray for them, Lord God, that they would see their need to do so by your spirit. And we pray for each one of us that we would Always put Jesus as first in our lives. Father, be merciful to us and rid our lives of those things which would be our idols. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.